Thanks so much, Sarah. Uh, good, me- good evening, everyone. Yeah, good evening. Take it day. Uh, it's lovely to be with you tonight. Let me commit our time to God in prayer. Our great God, we thank you that you are a God who loves immensely. And uh, we pray tonight, uh, whatever we've got on our minds, got on the week ahead, uh, whatever state you have us in right now, we pray that you would still our hearts, uh, help us to have ears that are willing to hear your word, to hear you speak. And we pray that your spirit would lead us into truth and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, some of you will know that I'm married to Jess. I tend to mention Jess or my kids in most of my sermons, but uh, Jess uh, is involved in a ministry. We go to morning church together, and she's been involved the last couple of years in a ministry for zero to five-year-olds, and uh, it's for those in church and out in the community as well. It's called Junior Jivers. And uh, I love, I've grown to love Junior Drivers as a music and dance ministry. Uh, and I always, I call Jess the, the CEO of Junior Drivers. And, uh, and I, I call her that affectionately because during COVID years, she would spend hours planning, how am I going to run a, a dance and music ministry for kids who are at home uh, and video it and all the rest. And uh, so she's very passionate about this ministry. I always know when there's a new song that's been added to Junior Jivers uh, because we've got a little three-and-a-half-year-old Archie who tends to then go around the house singing that song or doing those actions. And uh, every single night, uh, we still have to sing the goodbye, goodbye song to Archie before he goes to sleep. And uh, he loves it so much. But the latest song that's hit number one on the charts for Junior Drivers in the last week has been, now I'm going to get you to, you'll hate doing this, EC hates doing this, but, but all the other congregations got on board, so you've got to show me love. It's a bit like YMCA, but here you've got to use your hands from your seats. So we go, L, come on, follow, let's see those hands. L-O-V-E, I love you. Oh, no, I got it wrong, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, that's right. I love you and you love me. Again, L-O-V-E, that's the way it's meant to be. Hey, you guys know it the best. Uh, you may or may not know that song. It's not written by the Wiggles. It's not Colin Buchanan. It's, that's it, high five. And uh, some of you are going, where's this going? Uh, it is a talk about love, but it's also about high five in the sense that we're in Galatians 5. So there's your memory hook. You're not going to forget it, Galatians 5. And uh, the reason I'm telling you that is we're not actually going to be in Galatians 5 uh, each week. We're going to be in different passages that Paul has written that we've chosen uh, to associate with that particular fruit of the Spirit. Um, but the fruit of the Spirit, here's the two key verses that mention them in Galatians 5. I'll read them to you. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Isn't it annoying you get forbearance and not patience? Nine fruit. Uh, Now, firstly, note, it's quite key that you just pick up this for the whole series. They're not fruits of the Spirit. They're fruit, singular, of the Spirit. And Paul was quite deliberate in making it a singular uh, collective noun. And his purpose in doing so is they come as a package. They're supposed to be... uh, 
One person's described them well. They're, they're like a nine-piece mandarin. You peel the skin, but there's all these different parts that join together. That's a helpful illustration because they're interrelated. You don't kind of pick, oh, I'm more of a joy person, not into self-control. No, the fruit of the Spirit all develop as the Spirit makes you more like Jesus as a Christian. And so each week we're in a topical series. We're going to take one fruit at a time. We're starting with the top of the list, love. And love is the primary kind of overarching fruit that in one sense encapsulates them all. And uh, we're going to be jumping around a couple of different verses in the Bible, uh, but anchored in that, that uh, second reading you heard from 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, it's a great reading. It's often read parts of it uh, at weddings. And uh, we'll get into what that is in the second point. Now, if you're a Christian... Uh, the big thing that I want to send you home tonight from EC or as you go head on out to dinner, uh, I want you to be more convinced uh, than when you walked in that God's purpose for you out of this sermon is that you would pursue love more and more. And so the motto, if you're just a kind of nutshell, I'm a bit tired, give me the nutshell takeaway for this sermon, uh, here it is. A three-word life motto that you walk out of EC, you go home and, and it's a thing you hold on to this, this week. You, not me. You, not me. And uh, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus uh, and you're not a follower of Jesus, just want to say, uh, so glad you are here at church, whether you're visiting, whether you don't know anyone here, whether someone brought you along tonight. Uh, I just want to say... It is possible in a series like the Fruit of the Spirit that we're doing here at church, I really don't want you to get confused. And uh, what I don't want you to get confused about is it's easy to hear love, joy, peace, patience. Yeah, I basically get it. Christians are on about being good people. And uh, what you can mistakenly hear and affirm, which is not what the Bible's message is, is that the way you get to heaven, the way you get right with God is basically by being a pretty good person and that your good is a bit more than your bad overall. And uh, that is not biblical Christianity. That is not what makes a Christian. Uh, The key to understanding Christianity is not what you do, it's what God has done. And uh, last couple of weeks, we've been in a three-part series for Easter, which is all about what God has done. And uh, if you know any of the Bible, the key verse that you might know about that picks up on God's love, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One writer helpfully put it, uh, we are saved by faith, not by fruit. But then he adds, but we're also never saved by a fruitless faith. Uh, If you're not a Christian, this will be a great series for you to actually tune into and check out what is attractive about Christianity. What is it that brings this group of people together each week and throughout the uh, midweek as well? What is amazing about the claim of a Christian to have a freedom and a fruitfulness that's different to everyone else around them? If you're writing notes, I've got four, four, not three, four brief points. L-O-V-E, loved, others, visible, empowered. Okay, so point number one, loved. And uh, the first reason why you should head out from EC tonight and pursue love and have a you-not-me attitude is because you, if you are a Christian, you have been pursued by a God of love. And uh, we heard it in our first reading, Psalm 100, God is good 
and his love, his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, There's a verse in 1 John 4 verse 16 that says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And I want you just to listen to a prayer that Jesus prayed towards the end of his ministry before he went to the cross in John 17 for his disciples. And you'll pick up three themes, unity, glory, and love. Listen to these verses. Jesus said, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may know, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am in them so that they may be brought to complete unity. Uh, I am in, uh, sorry, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prayed that you would know that God loves you, that you are loved. What's the evidence of God's love? Paul will write in Romans 5, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though For a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christian, you are loved and the cross is the proof of that love. You might be sitting here tonight and you go, I don't feel loved. Uh, I find it difficult to love myself. The cross is the objective proof and evidence that God loves you. You've been pursued by a God of love. And guess what? That pursuit, his love for you, began before you even existed. You're someone who sits there, you go, you know, I find it very hard to feel loved. Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 6, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We forget this. We forget the goodness of the blessings that we've received in Christ. For he chose us, verse 4, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In what? In love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. You don't have a plan for where your life's going. Where am I going? God has a plan for you. He's pursued you by love. The end of verse 6. In accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. You are loved. You are chosen. You are holy. You are blameless. You are predestined. You are adopted. These are truths that make up your identity, who you are. Love is at the very heart of the Christian gospel. Love is at the very heart of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a Christian writer, J.I. Packer, and uh, he describes it like this. Listen carefully. New Testament Christianity is essentially a response. Not what you do, it's a response to the revelation of the Creator as a God of love. We heard that in Psalm 100. He made us. God is a tri-personal being who, who so loves ungodly humans that the Father has given His Son, the Son has given His life, 
And Father and Son together now give the Spirit to save sinners from what? Unimaginable misery. And lead them to where? Unimaginable glory. You ask the question, how do I grow in my life in the fruit of love? You remember what you were saved from. Unimaginable misery. At the heart of the Christian faith is a rescue mission. And what that means is we deserve the clear message, not a popular message at all, but the clear message of the New Testament of the Scriptures is that we deserve God's wrath and anger and fury and punishment eternally for our rejection of the God who made us. We deserve judgment for our sin. I want you to think, what's the opposite of love? And I asked that question at 4pm and someone yelled out, hate. And there is a sense in which, yeah, no, hate, love, hate, they're opposites, aren't they? But I want to say, no, the opposite of love, different word, indifference. Indifference. The opposite of love is not caring at all. Uh, Yesterday we were out out at St. Peter's Watson's Bay and we were running a marriage enrichment course uh, in one of the middle sessions with a a bunch of couples uh, from different congregations here. And uh, in the middle session, the presenters picked up on some research by a guy called John Gottman and uh, he speaks about the four marriage killers. And uh, he spoke about them kind of ominously as the four apocalyptic horses, horsemen. Uh, and what they are is they're the big warning signs to kind of watch out. If you're married to someone and you start to see these signs, it's not great. Like, you want to respond. And uh, he, he picked them up before uh, criticism, contempt, defensiveness. And it's the last one I want to pick up on, stonewalling. Stonewalling. To a married couple who promised, I'll be there no matter what, all the until you die, till death do us part. Stonewalling is where one spouse actually turns their back on the other spouse and they check out of the relationship. And they become indifferent. There's no longer an emotional response going on, which is, you know, anger. Anger, you know, I'm so angry because this is not right, what's going on in our relationship. No, indifference is the opposite of love. And God is not like that. God is love and he's not indifferent to our sin. He's acted in love in the greatest, deepest, furthest measured way by sending his son to pay a debt that we couldn't pay. A debt we owe because of our sin. Listen to this loving warning to all people in Acts 17. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Christian, you are loved. The proof of God's love for you is Jesus went to the cross and said, you, not me, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the death you deserved, he paid the debt you couldn't pay, and you have been saved from unimaginable misery for a purpose of unimaginable glory remember how loved you are that's foundational that's core that's how you begin to grow in the fruit of love in your life that's the longest point secondly others the you not me theme we see in 1 corinthians 13 is not just a nice theme that sounds lovely to the ear 
poetically on a wedding day when a bride and groom look very good up the front and that's the wedding text that they've chosen. Uh, I'm not bagging out that wedding text, but the key thing I do want to say is if you're using that as your wedding text, you want whoever's unpacking it to pick up what is the context actually going on here. Because you can grab anything in the Bible and make it sound, you know, make it say what you want to say. And I, I do suspect that that's a text that's often picked um, because it doesn't mention God, it doesn't mention Jesus explicitly, it doesn't mention the Spirit, and it sounds lovely. Um, Paul, in the wider letter of 1 Corinthians, is actually using this chapter as his argument. It's his firecracker that he lights under the church of Corinth to get a big message across to them because their motto in life is, me, not you. And as you read through the letter of 1 Corinthians, it's a kind of messed up church. They're divisive. They are arrogant, they're immature, they take each other to court. When they have the Lord's Supper communion, they scoff it down so quickly that the people at the back don't get any food or bread. And uh, on top of all of that, they're obsessed with gifts. And so spiritual gifts is actually what Paul picks up on in chapters 12. So we read chapter 13, chapter 12, chapter 14, Paul is dealing, Paul's addressing what they wrote to him about when it comes to spiritual gifts. And Paul is not anti-grace gifts at all. But between these two chapters, 12, 14, becomes 13, and the link to his argument, the last verse we heard at the beginning of our reading of chapter 12 reads, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What's the more excellent way? A chapter about love. And the first verse of chapter 14, first two words, pursue love. In other words, Paul wants this church to be a church that's driven by love to become profoundly other-centered. And part of his argument in verses 1 to 3, Paul makes the point that you can have all the giftedness in the world. And I don't know what tests you've done to kind of pick out what's my strengths finder, what's my personality, what, what abilities has God uniquely given to me. You can have all the giftedness in the world, Paul starts this chapter, by saying you can have angelic tongues, you can have mountain-moving faith, you can have unparalleled charity given. You, someone could come to your home and the whole wall is stuck with compassion kids that you support. And Paul would make the point that if there's not love, it's worth nothing. He counts for nothing. Love is the thing that really matters. Well, what's his love supposed to look like? In verses 4 to 7, Paul describes it to us, and he does so by using two positives, eight negatives, and four things that love always does. And look at the two positives just with me in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. There's the two positive things. Love is patient. It has to do with our time. Literally, the word is love is long-suffering. Now, love is patient because that's what God's like. God is long-suffering in dealing, in dealing with people who reject Him over and over again. He's patient with us and He calls us to have a long fuse as well as we relate to others. Um, sometimes love isn't what you do, it's what you don't do. And love is kind uh, love is like the woman who I heard about earlier this week, connected to our church, who uh, in love on a Tuesday morning got up at 4.30, 5am, went with her friend to the flower market because she was good as a horticulturist, helped her friend choose the flowers that would be arranged and then went with her to this church building and set up the flower arrangements that would be there on Wednesday for her mother's funeral. 
That's an incredibly kind thing to do. Uh, Love is kind is like the two girls from this congregation, along with some others, who yesterday gave up a Saturday morning to drive out to Watson's Bay. They'd already bought ingredients and they baked for married couples for the whole morning and did all the -the behind-the-scenes work uh, so that those married couples at one point in that morning could grab a picnic box and have a conversation and really... Uh, and really feel loved and cared for. Love is kind. And then the eight things love is not. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. And uh, the convicting part of the week for me as I thought about preaching on a sermon of love and looked up some of these texts and uh, great advice that was given to me uh, when I was um, studying was make sure you always sit under whatever word you're preaching yourself and, uh, and have that moment where you go, God, what are you saying to me? And these were the verses, this was a moment where uh, I got struck and convicted because I looked at these things, what love is not, and I realized... I fall short on so many of these things all the time. I am quick to be envious of what other people are like, what abilities and giftedness that God has given them, whether they're smarter than me, whether they're more confident or more sociable, whatever it is. I am boastful. I love people to know what I've done or achieved. Or uh, to, you know, I, I'm a task-oriented person. I, I like to tick a box and, and, uh, and meet a mark, but boastful often. Um, proud and self-seeking. To be honest, there is a lot of the time where I'm far more concerned with me than I am you. And you're probably the same for some of those as well. As you look down that list, maybe it is that anger, you're quick to get angry at someone. Maybe it is that you find it really easy to keep a record of wrong, that there's some people who don't get your love. No, they're in your not good list. And, uh, and you give them a cold shoulder. Whatever it is for you, this description that Paul writes here about love is only fulfilled in one person. And the hero of the love sermon is not the guy up front, it's not the person sitting next to you, it's not you, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one, Jesus is kind, Jesus is patient, Jesus doesn't envy, Jesus isn't boastful, Jesus models to us the kind of love that is to be truly human. And uh, we, some of you will have started back at your growth groups last week. I think there's 95% of evening church in growth groups, which is amazing. Uh, as a guy who's kind of oversees some of growth groups, that's just a hugely encouraging stat. So if you're in the 5% who's not in growth groups, then get in a growth group. And uh, if you're in the 95%, stay in a growth group. Uh, But one of the things that I certainly have a vision, I hope you have a vision if you're a growth group leader or just you are part of a growth group, is that our groups would be little ecosystems, hubs of love. So that we don't just become puffed up with a lot of knowledge, but so that we are grounded in the truth, but profoundly loving in the way that we relate to each other. And so I want to just set that as a bit of a challenge as you come back to growth group Uh, May we be known, may our growth group, may you do your part within that growth group so that other people in the group feel safe, safe to share what they honestly think, safe to ask a dumb question, safe to um, share what's actually going on in their life and not pretend and put up a face, 
uh, groups that will be patient with each other, groups where pride doesn't actually get in the way. You don't worry about coming to growth group because there's jostling or you feel like someone else just, you know, is always looking down on you. No, the group motto is you, not me. You don't make it to a few weeks and you know someone's going to check up on you. Groups where it actually becomes easier to reject sin, A, because we talk about it, B, because we share vulnerably when we do sin, C, because we're quick to confess, but mainly because we don't delight in evil. We don't laugh about what other people laugh about. And groups where it's easy to live a holy life and choose God's way because we rejoice in the truth. We love the truth. We come home encouraged by what we saw in God's word together that night. And then the four things that love is always, verse 7, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And when I love like this, when you love like this, we're learning to live by the motto, you, not me. And I become more concerned than I naturally would be with your welfare, not just my welfare. And what it means is I'm not cynical towards what you say. Love always trusts. And it means that I want what's best for you. I'm filled with hope for you. I haven't written someone, oh, they yeah, don't want anything to do with them. No, filled with hope. And I stick by you. Love perseveres. And that's the kind of love that we want to keep cultivating. And we want that to be true of us as evening church. A love that's protective of the vulnerable amongst us, whether... Uh, physically, abilities-wise, whether mental health, whether it's young, old, whether there's some season of life that makes you a more vulnerable person or trauma, a love that feels protective for the weak amongst us, a love that has a trust posture, a trust posture towards what's being taught up here on a Sunday from the front, a love that is hopeful. We are a church that is on mission. We want to reach more people and win them for Christ in this city. And you are hopeful about what God would do in and through a people committed and driven by love. And a love that sticks to coming on a Sunday night and gathering on a midweek as well. A love that sticks with each other. Especially when someone rubs us on the wrong way, when we hear something that didn't sit well. A love that deals with conflict well because we want to persevere with each other too. Pursuing love. Make, make the prayer that you pray as you prepare to come to evening church on a Sunday. Lord, who would you have me love tonight? Who's the person that you'd have me serve? And then move toward people rather than away from them. L for loved, O for others. Thirdly, love is visible. One of the traits about Christian growth in the fruit of the Spirit, uh, and I love it, John Stott called it, a gradual ripening. And uh, when I read that, I thought, yeah, that just actually reminds me of the fruit that I bring home um, uh, from Audi and, and I get the bananas, I put them out and they're all green and it's the start of the week and I'm waiting for that moment and sometimes I tear them apart or put them near other fruit because apparently that ripens it. And what I'm trying to do is I'm waiting for, when can I eat this fruit? When's it actually going to taste not disgusting? And I haven't pulled, it down, pulled the banana off too early. Um, Gone too long in that illustration. But um, the point is that Christian transformation is to do with our Christ-likeness and it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen straight away. We might, want it. we might have some days where, God, I just want to actually be more mature than I am. I do want to be more like Jesus than I am. 
And I want to say it's a gradual thing. It's a gradual ripening. And one of the encouraging verses I... Um, uh, I don't even remember where it's from, but it's a verse to do with Timothy, I think, which is, let your progress be on display, that we're work in progress, and uh, we see what God is doing in each other. Uh, how do we be sure, though? You might be sitting there, and you go, how do I know if God's Holy Spirit is at work in me to bring about this fruit? And uh, on a point about love is visible... I want you to just take you back to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And I'll read them to you. He says, Of teachers, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. What fruit are you producing? What fruit do you see in your life, in the life of another brother and sister in Christ as well? And what I'm not saying is that there's never any evidence of bad fruit. No, we're not, we're not fake Christians who turn up on a Sunday and I, I live the perfect Christian life. How was your? What did you do? Um, no, we, we, we see that we're works in progress, but our fruit is one of the best measures for God's spirit at work within us. And the key fruit to look out for, according to Jesus, when he taught his disciples in John chapter 13, and it's that, just to put it in context, at the start of that chapter, it's that scene where Jesus, the master, the Lord, the one they've been following, gets down on his knees and he starts washing their disgusting feet. He goes around each disciple and, and you get Peter to go, oh no, don't, don't wash me. And Jesus says, no, you won't have any part of me if I don't wash you. Um, and the point there is Jesus is modeling service. And just a little further on from that, he says to his disciples, by this, verse 35, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is to be the visible sign that we're Jesus' followers. Jesus modeled in that moment one of the ultimate you, not me mentalities. And why does he do it? He's teaching them about why love matters most, and it matters most for our wider witness. It matters because it's a display in a visible way of what God's doing in us. Later, John will write in his letter, 1 John 4 verse 12, no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. John's saying just in a different way to Jesus, but similar, similar point, that our practical, our sacrificial love helps make visible to the world and other Christians that God's life and his love is, in, is at work in us. And I think that's a great challenge for us as we live in the city that we live in, in this part of the world, because we're surrounded, we study alongside, we live with people, we have family members, friends, we're in a community that is very visually oriented. We live in a city that is very obsessed with property and aspires to living on harbour views. We live in a city that loves fitness and looking as good as we possibly can and spending big money to do so. We live in a city that is very concerned with status and uh, having titles next to our name, uh, the job, the job, you know, we, we, we want a good job and not a bad job. We want a good education and not a bad education. We want our car that we drive to look good. But as Christians, what we need to remember is from our last series in Mark 8, what Jesus said, Mark 8, 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? 
If, like me, you want to see more people, one for Christ, filling this building, then pursue love. I remember someone, uh, some years ago, I was doing a, an interview for a church for a job, and uh, there were a couple of warning signs along the way, but near towards the end, I got asked lots of questions. Towards the end, I got an opportunity to ask a question. I wasn't getting a good vibe, and I just asked the minister of this church, I just said, do you love the people at your church? And uh, he couldn't give me a straight answer to that question. And so I had no hesitation in turning down that job. Love is essential to the mission of our church because love is the way people see, yes, God is at work here visibly. Well, finally, loved others visible and lastly and shortest, empowered. Uh, Remember back to the beginning, it's a bit corny, but high five for Galatians 5 or ending in Galatians 5, it makes very clear that the Christian is engaged in a battle, a battle between two natures, the sinful old nature which produces the works of the flesh, works of the, not fruit, works, plural, of the flesh, the hard work that they come from us, versus the spiritual nature, the newness in life that we have in Christ that produces fruit of the Spirit. And in this Galatians 5 chapter, we're called throughout it to, verse 16, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, and keep in step by the Spirit. And the point is, if we're to love and produce the fruit of love in our lives, it's going to be an empowered love. I remember a while back, someone uh, sent me a meme, and the meme was just a uh, poor old guy who's going up an escalator and he tumbles down, and in a very embarrassing way, uh, he's falling down this escalator head over heels, uh, but despite all of his efforts to go down the escalator, this escalator is just taking him onward and upward. And I remember just laughing at it, it had the title Sanctification, and uh, I just thought it is a great illustration for something true about our Christian life uh, that reminds us that because God's Spirit is at work in us, even when we stumble, even when we backslide, we can be sure that God is determined to work in us to take us onward and upward to be more like Christ, from one degree of glory to another. He is dedicated and has poured into your life His Holy Spirit to bring about the fruit of love. And a Christian life is not perfection. A Christian life is progress. The Christian life is seeing progress that it's not me. It's not, it's you, not me, rather than me, not you. So pursue love. Let me pray for us. Our great God, we thank you that you're gracious toward us. You don't treat us as we deserve. You love us and you've shown us that in the most ultimate way. Make your love known to us in a way. I pray for anyone here tonight who struggles to really believe, yes, I am loved. Would you drive home to them the adopting love of what it means to call you Father and to be truly known, fully accepted, sins taken as far as the east is from the west. Help us to be others-centered, Help us to be visibly demonstrating the love that you've poured into our hearts in a way that we love others. And we pray that we would do it not in our strength, but in the strength that you supply, that you empower by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.